Hello and welcome to episode 1122 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangrass presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangrass. Hello. Hi. So there has not actually been any baseball since the last time we spoke, thanks to poor weather in Chicago. There has been baseball news. I guess we can briefly discuss the firing of John Farrell before we get into our regularly scheduled email show. So the Red Sox have not really supplied any rationale for their firing of John Farrell. There was an extremely uninformative David Dombrowski press conference (laughs) in which he essentially refused to explain why he fired Farrell. He said it was just sort of everything He said, you weigh everything when making a decision like this. There are things that you keep to yourself. I'm not going to get into particular situations that really made the final decision. And purely on a team success level, this is a tough time to get fired for for John Farrell, I would say, just because obviously he's had a pretty successful tenure despite a couple down years. The Red Sox are coming off back-to-back division titles. He is the first Red Sox manager ever to win back-to-back division titles, and Sure, they had two ALDS exits in a row, but they ran into better teams. I don't know how much he can be blamed for that. I think he is not a great tactical manager. I know lots of Red Sox fans have been frustrated by him and his managing, and it's not really that shocking, I guess, when you consider that Dave Dombrowski was not around for the John Farrell World Series. Often a general manager or president of baseball ops will just make a change when he comes in, and Farrell got to stick around for a while and you know there was a fair amount of controversy on the Red Sox this season I guess between the Apple Watch nonsense and David Price in the press and all the beanball stuff with Machado but you know I I guess there are things going on here that we are not aware of at least as we speak and maybe some of that will come out maybe some of it won't but it sounds like it probably had more to do with personality stuff either Farrell not working well with Dombrowski or players complaining about Farrell that kind of thing I I know that you know the Red Sox some of their young talented players sort of stagnated this season and I know Joe Sheehan pointed out that if you were going to make a case for firing Farrell you would probably make that case that Guys like Bogarts and Betts and Bradley failed to advance or took steps back in some way, whereas Joe Girardi, for instance, presided over a bunch of breakouts of young players. And for me, I think that just wouldn't really have much bearing on the decision. I think like at this point in baseball, I don't know that I would really attribute young players' success or failure to the manager. I, I would blame a, a manager for, say, burying a young player for not playing him and trusting veterans too much, something that Mike Matheny has seemed to be guilty of in the past. But as for actual player development, that just seems to me to be kind of outside of the scope of the manager's duties at this point. You have pitching coach, you have hitting coaches and assistant hitting coaches, and managers have so much other stuff to worry about and media responsibilities that I just don't know how much time any of them really devotes to that. So I'm sure that they could make young players comfortable in a way, but as for helping their skills or retarding their skills in some way, 
that to me, without knowing the specifics of the situation, probably wouldn't play a, a huge role in my decision. A few weeks ago, I was asked by an editor at ESPN if I could write an article. I was talking about the playoff teams, and I was supposed to write an article that essentially discussed and attempted to rank the the playoff managers. And I received that email and said some words to myself under my breath. And then I responded to that email that to paraphrase said, no, I <laughs> I can't do this. I will not do this. I, this is yeah. not just me being stubborn. This is also for the sake of your own website, because anything I write would be uninformed garbage. Mm. Now, that was out of complete honesty on my part. And I believe you and I have the same perspective on this and on all things in that it's impossible to know from our perspective, it's impossible to know what a manager does. And while there are, of course, people who follow the teams and have more personal insight and are just far better informed, I don't know, maybe it's just because I've been doing this so long and I still have no answers with managers, but I end up sort of being this manager apologist. I don't mm -hmm. intend to be but it's just where I am. I know that, I mean, for Pharaoh, you're looking at he'd had five years of being the manager and you see Dave Dombrowski, he wasn't there when Pharaoh won his first World yep. Series, but he, he was on the other side when Pharaoh won his <laughs> ALCS in 2013. Yes. Not that that really means anything, but you've got three first place finishes and two last place finishes. So, you know, kind of hit or miss John Farrell mm -hmm. tenure, but I wouldn't hold it against him that young players failed to develop any more than I would give him credit for the fact that those young players emerged in the first place. So yeah. I don't really, I mean, he didn't have the rotation he thought he was going to have this year and still they finished in first place ahead of a Yankees team that was far better than it was supposed to be they didn't have David Price pitching at full effectiveness they certainly didn't have Rick Porcello being his Cy Young self but well why wasn't he his Cy Young self well he was last year is Farrell responsible yeah. for his emergence or for his decline I don't know mm -hmm. I think that this this ultimately will come down to the old need a new voice explanation which you know totally fine I get it sometimes you just get sick of being in I mean it's not it's not like the team is in a relationship with Farrell but all the players have their own individual relationships with Farrell, I guess, or at least they did. Mm -hmm. And, you know, things change over five years. I don't need to explain that to anyone who's ever been in a relationship with anyone. Sometimes you just kind of get sick of someone. Sometimes you just want to... Uh, just a, some sort of shift. So I'm sure there were some sort of working disagreements that existed just as there would be with even the most successful manager in the game. And well, if, if the Red Sox think they need a new voice, to if it's just all about trying to foster a better, more supportive clubhouse atmosphere, which is how I interpret the need for a new voice, then I guess that's their decision to make. I am not one to say that it's wrong, but I mm -hmm. certainly would not ever want to have some manager's job security come down to the fact that you lost two consecutive division series to superior baseball teams. That's just yeah. short-sighted and stupid. Yeah, and Dombrowski said that regardless of the team's success, this would have happened, which I wonder whether that's true. If the Red Sox had actually won a World Series, would he have <laughs> followed through on that? <laughs> Kind of doubt it, but, but <laughs> I, you know, I don't know what was going on behind the scenes here. So maybe we'll get more details sometimes when a manager is fired. You get like people who are still with the team or even players kind of leaking stuff about why he was fired or why they didn't get along. So some of that might come out, but this is probably largely about things that we are not privy to. And that's fine. And yeah, I'm I'm basically with you on that. In the past, a couple times I've done an article that I called the Managerial Meddling Index. Maybe <laughs> I'll do it again at some point in the future because it's a fun exercise. It was just sort of breaking down descriptively but not prescriptively 
how managers operate in games, and obviously this included nothing about how they handle the press or how they interact with their players, which is very important, but just characteristics of how they manage, basically, and it was uh, an interactive thing where you could choose the categories you cared about and didn't care about and end up with uh, a ranking, basically, of how much managers intervene. But even that, I mean, there are probably some things that you could say, oh, this is bad or this is good. I mean, if you're leading the majors in intentional walks or sacrifice bunts or something by position players, eh, that's that's probably bad, I guess, if you want to just have a blanket judgment on it. But for the most part, it's it's pretty tough to do that. So it was more of a fun exercise than saying these managers are good or these managers are bad. <laughs> so this is not entirely unpredictable i think people's columns right after the red sox lost were will they fire Farrell?" and yes they fired Farrell, <laughs> as it turns out so that's about all we can say on the subject right now and i guess the red sox are kind of in an interesting place as a team but maybe that's more of an off-season topic than a mid-playoffs topic yeah don't so, burn topics yeah <laughs> we need to save them for those cold cold winter nights so we have Baseball today, of course, important baseball today, but we can't really talk about it yet. And by the time you're hearing this, much of it will have happened. We know now it seems that Steven Strasburg will be starting Game 4 after a flip-flop on that. As far as we knew yesterday, he was either sick or had thrown a bullpen and was therefore unavailable or just had a weak moral character, according (laughs) to some people who wrote about this situation. Now, according to the latest reports, as we record this, he actually will be starting. Kind of confusing. Don't really know what was going on there any more than we know what was going on with Farrell and Dombrowski, but seems like Strasburg will be starting probably for the best although there were positive spins you could put on Tanner Roark still continuing to start too. Anyway, there's uh, probably a limit to how much we can say about these games. Do you have anything you want to say about either of these games that will maybe be outdated by the time anyone hears this? I just, okay, so just with the Nationals thing, I don't, maybe I don't get why this is such a big deal. I understand that elimination games are stressful, but look, Strasburg, whether he starts game four or game five, again, when you listen to this, it will have already happened or something, but the Nationals need to win both games. So they need mm-hmm. to win two games to knock out the Cubs. They need to lose zero games to knock out the Cubs. Steven Strasburg is yeah. slated to start one of those games no matter what. So you figure, well, the odds in that game don't change. And so this really comes down to, I guess, whether the Nationals can start Tanner Roark or Gio Gonzalez in the other game. Well, Gio Gonzalez had a sparkling ERA this year. Great. That's good for him. Doesn't mean anything to me. His other numbers were the same as always. And Tanner Roark had a worse ERA this year. So, you know, you look at Roark versus Gonzalez and you think, well, Roark's ERA was higher by almost two runs. That's terrible. Well, there's a, yeah, but on the other hand, it doesn't matter yeah. because all the numbers that actually mean anything are basically exactly the same. And just last year, Gonzalez was the one who had the ERA about two runs higher than Roark. And that doesn't not matter. And plus, this is the playoffs so this identity of the starting pitcher doesn't really matter that much anyway because in theory you're you're going to go to the bullpen before there's too much trouble and you can have max scherzer available to come out of the bullpen just because he can be that kind of workhorse so this has been i don't know maybe it's because there's been no baseball for a day that people need something to be all dramatic about but i don't know maybe i'm also just a serial down player but Mm -hmm. eh, this seems like it's a big story about not really anything that matters to me if strasburg is sick i mean who cares about being like a hog being 
an ace mm-hmm. being a workhorse because yeah, give him a day to heal up, give him a day to rest and yeah. feel better. Maybe he'll pitch better because his body won't be trying to kill itself. So right. I understand that the Nationals are on the brink and you don't want to be on the brink of elimination starting someone who isn't Steven Strasburg, but uh, you have to win two games and whether you lose in four or five or advance, it just... Uh, the order of things doesn't really matter to me, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is just lingering ERA-based influence. Gio Gonzalez is not that good of a pitcher. I'm sorry, you guys and yeah. girls. I think the lesson from this series maybe is just that you can never go wrong as a manager just sticking with your best player, basically. like mm-hmm. It might be the wrong decision, but you will get criticized less if you leave Max Scherzer in or if you start Steven Strasburg or whatever. Like If you just say, this is our best guy, and so he is pitching— I think probably the majority of fans and maybe writers even will be on board with that. It's it's harder to criticize, but it takes a, a bravery and a boldness not to do that at times when it makes sense not to do that. So I think we've already talked about Dusty's decision with Scherzer and this one. Yeah, we don't know the facts, so it's really hard to say if Strasburg is actually feeling sick or unprepared in some way and was essentially pressured into saying, fine, I'll start. That seems not great, but (laughs) we don't know that that was the case really. And anyway, it will contribute probably if the Nationals lose this game to a perception that, you know, whatever, they have some kind of built-in playoff problem and weakness and chokeness and they can't get on the same page about who's starting this important potential elimination game so not great from a PR perspective hard to say if it's good or bad from a baseball perspective currently all right so let's do emails let's do some playoff emails but (laughs) not entirely so uh, let's start with this one Nick says there was a lot of hype this year about the Dodgers who, before they went on their huge losing streak, had something like a 20% chance of tying or breaking the 116-win record, according to an article at 538. This got me thinking about how many all-time great teams still had to get a little lucky to win as many games as they did. For instance, the 2001 Mariners played seven games above their Pythagorean record, and the 1998 Yankees played six games above their Pythagorean record. I don't know if sabermetric projections were a thing in 1998 or 2001, but I doubt the Yankees and Mariners would have been projected for 114 and 116 wins, respectively. This got me wondering how good a team's roster would need to be in order to be projected for 116 wins. Meaning out of all simulated seasons for that team, they would most often win 116 games. Would you be able to discuss what goes into win projections along with what the roster of a true talent 116 win team might look like? Good lord. Well, let's see. Let me just pull up this spreadsheet that I have that I've referred to several times before. This is a spreadsheet of all the team projections I could find kind of smashed together going back to the year 2005. That was the first year I could find anything on the internet that seemed vaguely reliable that projected the upcoming season. So that gives me, what, 13 years of data now, which gives me 390 team projections. And there has been exactly one team in the entire window that was projected to win even 100 games. And that was the 2005 Cardinals. So this is pulling from the earliest projection set that I could find. So maybe the least reliable. In any case, that team actually did win 100 games. So you could say they underachieved by a game, but still... They won 100 games, but we're talking about a projection of 101 wins. The email is about a projection of 116 wins. So you take whatever that team was, and I guess the 2005 Cardinals, that was Pujols, 
That's the first name that comes to mind. So essentially, you would need to take that team and add, let's say, so let's see, we're, we're missing 15 projected wins, right? So mm-hmm. let's say that you have five positions where you have pretty good above average players. Replace all of those players with Albert Pujols. <laughs> And then, well, maybe maybe only three positions, but that team would need to have at least three more Albert Pujols's yeah. in order to be projected for 116 wins. Because you just can't you can't build the team that good. First of all, not in this day and age. It's just it's almost impossible unless you get extraordinarily lucky. Mm-hmm. And so, in order to be projected that good, that's basically impossible. You need to have basically four or five of the best ten players in baseball. Because I can't think of another way that you would be able to have that kind of projection. Because projections are based on true talent, and true talent is based on projections. This is tautological, but <laughs> any sort of extreme statistical outlier, I guess. Well, outlier is the wrong word, but no, outlier makes sense because any extreme data point, I guess, you should expect to be influenced by luck. You should expect anything that seems way too low or way too high to have been unlucky or lucky because the actual distribution of talent and ability is closer to the mean than the results that we get. So I don't have a better answer than you need a lot of Pujolses or I guess in this day and age, you need as few Pujolses as possible. So that's a sad way to answer that question. (laughs) Yeah. Is the article that you wrote a little more than a week ago relevant here when you did your rating all the playoff teams post? Hmm. Because you've done this back-to-back years, and so at the very end when you published your final table about weighted 2017 stats projections for the playoff teams, this year you had the Dodgers at 114. Last year you actually had them at 117. So can you explain what exactly you did there? Because you did end up with a projection for a team roughly in this win range. Sort of a projection. So each of the last two years at Fangraphs, I have, uh, when the playoffs began, I have tried to figure out which teams look the best. It's easy to look at teams in the playoffs and think that, oh, this team had this ERA, but this team had this DRS, whatever. But I don't really like using full season numbers for teams because we know that the teams are actually different when they go to the playoffs. Mm -hmm. They're going to use their players differently and they've just made transactions or there are injuries or recovered players, whatever. So in each of the last two years, I have taken the projected playoff rosters for every team in the playoffs and I have tried to figure out expected playing time for those players. And then I have tried to see which team looks the best based on how we think the players will be actually used. Now, of course, when I was doing this for this postseason, I didn't expect that starting pitchers would go one inning a game. So the number are a little bit warped, but I've done this and in each of the last two years I have tried to figure out which teams looked the best based on the projections that we had on the website and which teams looked the best based on how their players actually did the season before. So, for example, looking at the Dodgers this season, uh, based on their expected playoff roster and based on the projections we have on Fangraphs, I found that their expected playoff roster, if that were a roster over a full season, would be expected to win about 106 games. That would be an outstanding baseball team. Now, granted... Mm -hmm. All the other teams, except for the Twins and the Rockies, also outstanding. But if this is explained clearly, looking at that same expected Dodgers roster, if you just plugged in their 2017 performances instead of their projections, which there's a difference there because projections are based on more than one year, then those Dodgers came out to uh, about a 114 win pace. Uh, just barely clearing the Indians, Nationals, Astros, Yankees, who are all extraordinarily good themselves. So I guess looking at just one season alone, not the same as looking at projections. So maybe it's helpful to think about it in terms of even if you take the Dodgers, probably maybe the best team in baseball, even if you take the Dodgers 
and use their playoff roster for an entire season, I still couldn't get them above 106 projected wins. That's with a four-man starting rotation where you use Kershaw and Darvish more than the other guys, mm-hmm. and that's with their position players and not any real weaknesses on the bench. Last year when I did this, the highest projection I got was, oh, look at that. Also, the Dodgers at 105 yeah. wins per 162. So even if you took the last two seasons of the Dodgers and used their playoff roster, which would lean on their best players and only their best players, I still couldn't get them close to 116 wins as a projection because that projection would require the Dodgers have two more or I guess two in the first place, Mike Trouts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. I We don't actually have to answer this question, but I wanted to just <laughs> read it because I really liked this tiny two-email thread that we had here. This was received on October 3rd at 8.43 p.m. from a listener named Joe. He, this was during the AL wildcard game, and the subject line says, The phrase, clinging to a lead. And Joe says, the Twins broadcasters on the radio feed use the following phrase, the Twins right now are clinging to a 3-0 lead here in the bottom of the first. And Joe says, when does it qualify as clinging? Then follow-up email from Joe six minutes later at 8.49. Never mind, I forgot Urban Santana was pitching. (laughs) (laughs) That was after the Yankees tied the game. So yeah, the, the situation, the pitcher on the mound, the ballpark, the offensive team, I think all of that weighs into whether a team is actually clinging to a lead or not. And in that situation, I think when you have a guy who gives up as many fly balls and home runs as Herman Santana does in Yankee Stadium with the Yankees lineup, that was clinging to a lead, and he did not cling to it. If it is the Twins and it is (laughs) the Yankees and the Twins are in front, it is a cling. Yes. Okay, so Jay says, another terminology question, to continue the fine new tradition of Effectively Wild becoming the official lexicographer of baseball, I ask you this, when does a player become a veteran? Just now, I saw an article that called Yolmer Sanchez a veteran utility man. And I thought, damn, when did Yolmer Sanchez become a veteran? I usually think of veterans being guys over 30 who've seen regular MLB playing time for at least 5 to 10 years, maybe with a little gray in their goatee. But every now and then I see a guy like Sanchez being dubbed a veteran. What makes a veteran? A certain number of games, years played, or is it a demeanor or something earned just by comparison? Could a 25-year-old part-time three-year utility man be called a veteran if he's one of the oldest in a young clubhouse? Well, I guess the answer there is yes, because that's Yolmer yes. Sanchez, and he is yeah. uh, in a young clubhouse. There are, I guess, relative veterans, but if you're going to go black and white, it's a, a problem of not having the words, right? Because we've got rookies and, I don't know, just post-rookie young players, but there's nothing, I don't really know if we have a word for what's between a young, inexperienced player and a veteran. And if yeah. you if you want to use sort of the dictionary definition of veteran, it's just someone who has experience, right? So how, mm-hmm. what... I guess the question is, how little experience do you need? I equate veterans with being like, I don't know, at least 28 or 29, like at least kind of Paul Goldschmidt, you know? But uh, as I think about it, that seems like it's kind of my mistake. I wouldn't refer to Yulmar Sanchez as a veteran. I wouldn't even necessarily refer to Yulmar Sanchez because I still think of him as Carlos. But (laughs) I guess if I were pressed, he does count as a veteran. He's played more than 300 games in the major leagues, and he's not like a a doe-eyed rookie anymore. So what else Mm -hmm. is he? We don't have a word for the, the sort of intermediate career players. Yeah, I wouldn't quite go veteran with him, although, yes, I think, as the email points out, maybe it depends on the context. I mean, you could certainly say, like, so-and-so is a veteran compared to, 
these players, like, or, or you could say he's the veteran on the roster or something, if it's a very young team like the White Sox were in the second half of the season, then relative to most players, then sure, he was a veteran, but I wouldn't call him a veteran probably in just sort of a general context. Is maybe like just using up your team control years, is that a decent rule of thumb? Like to me, if you're still in your pre-arb or arbitration years, maybe that's a good way to distinguish between veteran and and non-veteran. Like if you're in pre-arb, I don't think you can be a veteran. If you're in arb, I don't know, maybe you could. But that like six or seven years that you're under team control seems to me to be, I guess, just kind of a handy way to decide who's a veteran and who isn't. But maybe it's different. I mean, if you're an older player when you come up, that's the thing. Like some guys might have a lot of minor league experience before they become major leaguers. And maybe that contributes to being a veteran too. So you could be well into your thirties and still be in your team control years if you happen to debut late. So I don't know if that's uh, across the board, one size fits all policy, but maybe that's a handy way to think about it for the typical player. Yeah, let's try it. So if you're just going off like dictionary.com, first definition would be a person who has had long experience in a particular field. Emphasis on long. Second definition would be a person who has served in the military. Well, sorry, baseball players, but (laughs) none of you really can. But uh, based on this other website, I can say, what is a veteran? This is all a quote from V, uh, oh, from the VA. Great. This is a real website that's reputable. What is a veteran? Title 38 of the Code of Federal Regulations defines a veteran as, quote, a person who served in the active military, naval, or air service and who was discharged or released under conditions other than dishonorable. So that suggests that it's someone who is no longer active. And now, of course, we're not talking about the military, but that does introduce a condition that is not just someone who has combat or military experience. So I like I like your definition then as sort of a carryover. And if you figure it, sometimes you have like a some sort of middle reliever who hasn't actually actually used up his sir, his uh, team control years, even though he's in his 30s, just because he'll kind of be up and down. But eh, that doesn't really count anyway. Uh, that's maybe more of a journeyman than a veteran to mm-hmm. go to some <laughs> old lexicon we've tried to describe. So yeah, yeah I like it. I, I like your definition. If you've used up your team control years, then you are a veteran. Mm -hmm. All right. Question from Donald. This is in response to a discussion we briefly had about, what was it, whether a a pitcher could get both a hold and a blown save? Was that what we were talking about or something like that? Yeah, something like that. Something I was wrong about. (laughs) Yeah. So Donald says, I have a scoring question as a follow-up to episode 1119. Haven't listened to episode 1120 yet, so my apologies if you already just discussed this. We have not. During 1119, there is a discussion, oh, he's going to say what it was right now, of not being able to get a blown save and hold or save during the same game. Would it be possible as a result of a Waxahachi swap? And as uh, people who may not know Waxahachi swap, that is the, the term that we've come to use for when a pitcher is used as a position player and then is swapped back in as pitcher within the same game. So Donald says it's not a super plausible possibility, but I think it would be within the rules. Pitcher A comes in with his team leading by one in the top of the eighth. He gives up the game-tying homer to the leadoff batter and walks the next two men. He then goes to left field, which would be weird, but okay, and pitcher B takes the mound, 
Pitcher B strikes out the next three hitters to end the inning. Pitcher A's team scores two runs in the bottom of the eighth to retake the lead. Pitcher A returns to the mound and pitches a clean ninth. Pitcher A would clearly get a blown save for giving up the game-tying run in the eighth. However, Pitcher B would get the win. He was the pitcher of record when his team took the lead, and by striking out three in a key situation, there'd be no reason for a scorekeeper to label the appearance brief and ineffective. Would Pitcher A get a save for his ninth inning work? So... After he comes back from left field and holds the lead, uh, essentially, that his team got while pitcher B was the pitcher of record. So this is a strange scenario that we wouldn't actually see, but I forwarded to our usual uh, official scorekeeper consultant, Darren, who says, I believe in this scenario, you could assign pitcher A a blown save and then a save. Just a note, there is no requirement to be effective to earn a save. As long as the following criteria are met, he's the finishing pitcher of the game won by his team, he is not the winning pitcher, he is credited with at least a third of an innings pitched, and he enters the game with a lead of no more than three runs and pitches for at least one inning, or enters the game regardless of the score with the potential tying run either on base at bat or on deck, or he pitches for at least three innings. Apologies for masculine pronouns, but I'm quoting from the MLB rulebook. Stacey Piagno and other women who pitch are definitely capable of earning saves. It used to say pitchers had to be effective to earn the three inning save so it doesn't say that anymore looking at the scenario described i believe the criteria are met it doesn't say he cannot get a blown save in order to earn a save i think it would work so there wow. it is okay yeah. i'm i was <laughs> very glad that you forwarded that along to darren because i was looking at that email and thought i do not want to go into the work to try to figure out the answer to this yeah <laughs> yeah so that's the answer so thank you donald for coming up with that crazy scenario all right so question from uh, let's take this one from Bo. I wanted to look up Zach Greinke's career postseason stats, so I started to type Zach Greinke fangraphs into my browser. His player page came up in my website history. It struck me that almost any time I want to go to a player's fangraphs page, it comes up in my browser history. <laughs> so my question is this. What percent of active MLB players do you think you have looked up on fangraphs or baseball reference, etc.? So hmm. what percentage of active players have you gone to a player page for? I guess, I don't know, we could confine it to say fangrass and baseball reference and baseball prospectus or, or something like that okay well we we might have different answers to this you and yeah, i so I'm sure yours is let's, higher. Uh, <laughs> i am probably at about 99 percent. so <laughs> i'm going to i'm going to quiz you just on some some random players that i will pull from let's say the padres pirates and eh, whatever orioles so just okay. tell me if you can recall going to player pages for miguel diaz i think so i think i have gone to miguel diaz <laughs> how about Phil Matone? Matin? Maton? No. Phil Maton. Certainly not. I don't okay. think so. Let's try. What about uh, Max Moroff? Doubt it. Don't think so. Okay, but you would be a yes for a gift and go pay? Yes, so definitely. I've I've interviewed him, so yes. How about Dovidas Nevaraskas? Also interviewed him, so yes. Uh-huh. Josh Lindblom? Lindblom? Eh. I can't say it made a huge impression on me if I visited his <laughs> player page. <laughs> I I don't have a specific memory of visiting or writing something about him or ever referring to him in print, so mm-hmm. I'll say no. Okay. Uh, here's one of my favorite names to say out loud in the majors. Anthony Santander. <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. Okay. Austin Hayes. I'm going to say yes. I think I've I think I've gone. Uh, and here's a pitcher I've never heard of before who was in the major league. So this is how I know I'm not at 100%. Jimmy Yacobonis. Yeah, I don't think so. Well, I can now say that I have clicked on his player page. So I'm climbing the list <laughs> personally. 
Yeah. Okay. And last one, I guess. Eh. Tanner Scott. Doubt it. Probably okay. not. Okay, so a little hit or miss with the ultra depth like September call up thirty first yeah. man relievers, but yeah. probably just about every single regular or every de- or semi regular, mm-hmm. probably every meaningful starting pitcher and meaningful reliever. So I don't know how much of baseball that covers, but right there, that's probably like eighty to eighty five percent. Yeah, there's so many relievers now, <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know what percent. I mean, you post more often than I do. You are, I think, probably browsing through leaderboards for weird outliers more often than I am and you manage the depth charts which I would assume leads to going to a lot of player pages for players I might not know so you've got to be significantly higher than I am but yeah 80% probably probably roughly in that range I guess I don't know if you count September call-ups and like last man in the bullpen types maybe it's a little bit lower than that at this point what percent of active movie producers or actors or actresses have you researched on I don't know if you use IMDB (laughs) but I don't know anything about researching this stuff so on the leading movie and film industry resource data well you know where this is going (laughs) yeah well there are a lot more actors and actresses than baseball players in the majors so probably pretty low and i have i did recently write an article about like the most frequent director actor pairings Mm -hmm. in recent movies and went to a lot of imdp pages for that but yeah it's it's probably uh i mean if we're talking all actors who have an imdp page who are like active and acting i mean it's got to be like in the single digits probably someone like jimmy yakabonis is essentially like your struggling actor who's waiting at yeah. the coffee shop right yeah well he's made the majors so that's uh, <laughs> that would be like i guess getting a, a bit part in a major like studio motion picture or something like that so yeah it's got to be very low there are a lot of actors and actresses but if we're talking like leading stars then eh, i don't know maybe like 30 percent 40 percent something like that i think let yeah, sure jimmy yakabonis made the majors but it's like being an extra in csi grand rapids like <laughs> it didn't really uh when you were doing the the director and actor link up how much of that did you just manually research like did you have a faster way of looking that up <laughs> yes yeah it would oh, have thank been. god it would have been deadly otherwise, yeah. <laughs> Walt Hickey, one of my former colleagues from 538, helped me scrape IMDb data with like a Python script. So it just automatically downloaded all of this information that <sighs> then was manipulated in Excel. So yeah, that, that saved me years <laughs> of, of research probably. Yeah, I, I was, I, my forehead was sweating a little bit when I clicked on that article thinking, oh yeah. God, how much work did he do for this? <laughs> yeah. All right. Play Index, we have a a Play Index question. This is from listener John. I have it up here. I guess I can read it. He says, with Jason Kipnis debuting in center field, this was in mid-September, obviously, although Kipnis still sometimes looks like he's debuting in center field. (laughs) I was wondering who the active MLB leaders are at each position of players who have only played a single position in the field, excluding DH. Kipnis had never played anywhere on the field besides second base in his tenure in Cleveland prior to his debut in center field in September, who are the career leaders in innings played for players who have played only one position in the field, and what chances do the active leaders have to catch the career leaders? That is uh, maybe a more difficult question, but anyway, the first part of the question. Yeah, so the second part of the question is so difficult, I did not even bother to look it up. But yeah. so I, this took me a little while longer than I thought it was going to, to look up who has played exclusively one position in the field, allowing for appearances at DH or pinch running and pinch hitting, whatever. So I've arrived at what I 
think are answers. I'm not 100% confident in these answers. Just for the record, Jason Kipnis has played 6,978.1 innings as a second baseman, and he did that all. I, I don't think he's played second base since he came back. I haven't looked it up. It doesn't matter to me, but he has played nearly 7,000 innings as a second baseman before playing center field in his age 30 season. Okay, so we're looking at catcher through right field, positions one through or two through nine, I guess. And here, I'm not going to read out the innings totals because that doesn't matter. Uh, Those are just going to be big numbers. So here's what I think are the right answers. Catcher. I don't know if I should ask you for guesses because maybe I'll ask you for guesses at the prominent position. So who who do you think might... This is a recent catcher. Who do you think might be the uh, leader that I found for catcher innings without ever playing like first base or anywhere else? Yachty? It is not Molina. Now, Molina has only played catcher. But let me just make sure. So Yadier Molina has played, scroll down. Yadier Molina has played, scroll down. <laughs> scroll down. All right, I guess I'll manually scroll down. There we go. Yadier Molina, oh no, he uh, he has played first base a few times before. He's played 82 innings at first base, so Molina doesn't hmm. count. Okay, okay, that's why. Hmm. But he has played more than 14,000 innings at catcher. Yeah, that's a lot of innings. Um, the leader that I found played oh, 16,335.1 innings as a catcher, and he DH'd 32 times. And he is active? Very recently inactive. You Very might recently. hear him on certain postseason broadcasts. People think that he's kind of a dick. Uh, Had blonde hair. <laughs> is uh, Punched by Michael Barrett, I think it was. Oh, oh. His first name is two letters. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is not going well at all. Oh, A.J. Pierzynski. There you go. A.J. Pierzynski. He was a catcher until he was 39 years old, which is incredible because he was never great, you know, but he uh, he hung around, but he was never good enough to like put at another position. So that would be his explanation. He caught almost all of the time. He he caught nearly 2,000 games. So (laughs) not only did he only play catcher or DH, he just about only played catcher. So Mm -hmm. A.J. Pierzynski at catcher. Okay, these other positions, we won't take that long. First base, I think the answer is Fred McGriff. Second base, I believe the answer is Lou Whitaker. Now, shortstop, this one's fun. Shortstop, well, I'll ask you for guesses. So... Uh, give me some shortstops who you think only played shortstop. So this this, is, this should not be that difficult, probably. All time? I mean, uh, this yeah, is... this is all time. But these mm-hmm. are like, these are shortstops you know. Okay. Is it like Ozzy Smith? Ozzy Smith is, I believe, third on the list. Ozzy Smith played 21,785.2 <laughs> innings as a shortstop. He played zero innings anywhere else. Not a surprise. Still a shortstop at 41 years old. He, I believe, third place. Uh, second place guy, not Vizquel. Vizquel moved around, I believe. Mm. Mm-hmm. Second place is a guy who played in the 60s and 70s, and I guess the 50s too. Played for the Concepcion. White Sox. No, I'll just say it's Luis Aparicio. Ah, mm-hmm. Aparicio, which I would have been tempted to say Aparicio, but baseball references there to save the day. <laughs> Prevent me from getting a, another corrective email from Mark Simon, who knows more than I do. Aparicio, 22,408.2 innings at shortstop. Who do you think played shortstop more than Luis Aparicio and Ozzy Smith? Hmm. Yeah, I guess Concepcion actually played a lot of positions for brief periods. So let's see. I'll give you a hint, perhaps. This guy does not seem to like firing employees himself. Oh, Oh, I was going to say, could it be Derek Jeter? Because, of course, he refused to play other positions or or had a strong (laughs) aversion to doing that. So, okay. 
Yeah, Derek Jeter, 23, this is does not count the playoffs, 23,225.2 innings as a shortstop, started 73 games at DH, but that's it. Derek Jeter, more shortstop than Luis Aparicio and Ozzy Smith. <laughs> that's funny. That enabled him to rack up some really incredible lifetime defensive stats at <laughs> that yeah, position. Right? <laughs> My goodness. Yeah. So less impressively, but I believe the answer at third base is Scott Rowland. As I look it up, Rowland played, yep, yeah, only third base, 17,479.1 innings, never did anything else. So Scott Rowland, good for him. Outfield, it gets worse. At least it gets less remarkable because, you know, if you can play one outfield position, you can probably play a few. Most I can find in left field is actually Chris Davis, so mm. current player, but I can't imagine he's going to go anywhere else. Maybe he'll play first base down the road. We've talked about him a little bit before in that he he has a, a mental block with his throwing, but he's not actually that bad of a defender. Mm-hmm. So I I could see him moving, I guess, to first base, maybe just because he is fairly athletic. But uh, there's a decent chance there that he just sticks in left field and that's it. Yeah. Center field to Brian McRae. Eh, whatever. Okay. Usually if you have a center fielder, then he's going to decline and end up playing a corner frequently. So couldn't do much for center field. In the right field, I'm not sure. The answer, I think, is either someone named Harry Lumley, who played Infinity years ago, or it might be Aaron Judge. The <laughs> problem with this is that when I looked it up, Harry Lumley, according to Baseball Reference, played between 1904 and 1910, which are years before we had any written records of humanity's existence. Uh, so this is all just word of mouth passed down from the uh, the dark ages. But Harry Lumley shows up on Baseball Reference with 5,965 innings played as an outfielder. But it does not specify. However, oh, I guess right over here, there is a column that suggests that it specifies, I think, Harry Lumley is the answer. I think he played all these innings in right field. That's what uh, baseball reference would suggest. But if that's not true, then I think the answer is Aaron Judge, who has played like basically a thousand, 1,400 innings in right field. And wow. he edges out like Hunter Renfro. <laughs> How could it be Aaron Judge, really? Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. It surprised me. I couldn't, I don't know. I guess maybe as a right fielder declines, then maybe they end up going to left field commonly, or maybe then they go to first base. Couldn't find a, a good answer, but yeah, that's that's huh. where I wound up. Wow. All right. Well, I know that you put a lot of effort into play indexing <laughs> that. So thanks for that. All right. Let's take a question from Andrew. I'm writing you because in all the playoff coverage you've done on your show, I have not heard any discussion of what might be the most exciting and dramatic inning of the whole postseason. (laughs) It features an all-star, a graded bat going to a full count, and a two-out walk-off home run, all described in what will certainly go down as an all-time great radio call. I am, of course, talking about the baseball action featured in the often-played commercial for Frog Tape, in which some men painting a room, turn on a radio, and listen to the slightly confusing call of the close finish of a baseball game. I have seen this commercial, or heard it, I suppose, countless times during my playoff baseball consumption, and I thought that I should bring it to your attention because breakdowns of confusing baseball action in commercials has been one of my favorite segments on the programs in the past. I would love to hear what you guys think of this one. It is on during every ad break, it seems, and it makes me laugh every time. And he does include a link which i will send to you here in case you have not heard this and while you're listening to that i will play it for the people bottom of the ninth Ooh, swing and a miss two outs in comes the all-star with the game on the line let's see if smith can protect his home turf he's really painting the corners tonight and here's the 3-2 pitch. Smith pulls one to right. A walk-off homer to win the game. What an amazing finish. Paint like a pro with Frog Tape brand painter's tape. 
for the sharpest lines every time. Uh, hmm. Okay, hold on. <laughs> so this is for frog tape, which is painter's tape, evidently. And this is a somewhat confusing sequence of events. Obviously, it is very lighted. They're they're skipping over plays and events here. They're just hitting the highlights. But even so, this is a pretty strange inning going on here. <sighs> I don't know if anything stands out to you immediately, but I can just... I mean, first of all, the fact that they are bringing in the closer in the bottom of the ninth with two outs following a strikeout, <laughs> following a, a swing and a miss, that seems unlikely. I mean, un- unless there, like, unless there was an injury or something, it's hard to imagine a manager letting a pitcher get the second out in the bottom of the ninth on a strikeout and then bring in the all-star closer like I I could see like maybe bringing in a situational guy or maybe you had a situational guy in, but you probably would have started the inning with the all-star closer so this seems unlikely I don't know if this has happened right is this I don't know is this Bruce Bochy who's playing the platoons in the ninth inning like bring in Javier <laughs> right. Lopez but Javier Lopez yeah, probably yeah. wasn't an all-star unless the Giants had a yeah. terrible season and he was a really good Louie so maybe I can't tell maybe the in comes the all-star means to say up comes the all-star with a game on the line I don't think that's what Could the announcer means, but... Well, so there's further confusion there that might possibly support that because after the All-Star comes in with the game on the line, the announcer says, let's see if Smith can protect his home turf, mm-hmm. and then he's really painting the corners tonight, which... <laughs> what? <laughs> okay, yeah. So, Smith... Let's see if Smith can protect his home turf. Can protect only his home Can turf. only refer to the batter because this is the bottom Unless of the inning. Uh, well, it's the bottom. It's like so, it's the bottom of the inning, right? So the home team is batting, so it can't refer to the pitcher. Ah, the, so, no, but what if, what if a game was relocated because of a natural disaster, <laughs> and then the home team was actually the road team? Well, this has taken place a few times in recent years, including this year with the Marlins and the Brewers, right? Okay, so clearly there, yeah, there has been a, there's been a hurricane, and that's that's just what's <laughs> left out. So yeah, we won't. But even so, protect his home turf. Like, does that mean? You're protecting it. Is home turf? Is that home plate, or is that the ballpark? It's, is home? Got to be the ballpark. It's it's got to be. We have Weird. to protect the. Well, okay. Let's not. We have to protect the ballpark. These aren't security guards, but presumably, right. no. I can't even presume anything. This is just stupid. He's really painting. <laughs> let's see if Smith can protect his home turf. He's really painting the corners tonight, referring to if it's referring to the pitcher. Well, the pitcher just I mean, it came could in. Be skipping. Right, it, it could just be skipping, like it, it, Smith could be either when you're saying protect his home turf and then he's really painting the corners tonight. That's the next thing we hear, but not necessarily the next thing the announcer says. Or So, I mean, it wouldn't be the next thing he says because he's just coming in, so he hasn't been painting anything with frog tape or, or otherwise. So I think, th- yeah, I, from context, we can't really tell. I'm not sure it makes sense in either context but <laughs> it's hard to say i'm rewatching so, here in the commercial there's something that happens between let's see if smith can protect his home turf and he's really painting the corners tonight so i think there's some sort of omission there so mm-hmm. maybe that's referring to the first six or five odd pitches of this at bat that's being discussed yeah. but can you really say that someone's really painting the corners when he just came in and he's thrown at <laughs> most like five or six right. pitches? It's the first batter he's faced, right? So <laughs> it seems kind of quick to say that. Yeah, and then and it skips right to the full count pitch, mm-hmm. which if he's – is he really painting the corners if there are two balls? <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a full count. Three balls. So 
Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, right, right, three balls. So I don't know if you can face one batter as far as we know, paint the corners and still have a three-two count. Okay, that seems so. Seems anyone like who's it. listening to this is listening to the uh, to the radio call. You can't actually see the visual. So I'm gonna there. There are at least two men who seem to be painting a room. <laughs> the room is white. It's being painted brown. Okay, so when the announcer says he's, quote, he's really painting the corners tonight, the walls appear to be completely white, and there is a man who is adding a few brown brush strokes around the frame of a window. When the announcer then says, and here's the 3-2 pitch, in the commercial, all of a sudden, the room is completely brown. The entire room has been (laughs) painted, and the tape is being removed (laughs) in the span of he's really painting the corners tonight, and here's the 3-2 pitch. So either so he's gotten rocked basically <laughs> yeah. between these two. This pitcher is getting <laughs> obliterated, but we know that can't be happening because he's allowing no. a single at bat right, to take place. The game is on the line. Right. So yeah. either this is the slow. This is like a very very subtle jab at baseball's miserably slow <laughs> pace of game, or this is like the <laughs> longest at bat. This is like Alex Cora on like foul ball steroids, and this has been like a yeah. seventy pitch at bat. Yeah. In which case, there's yeah. a lot more to discuss. Takuya Nakashima is up at the plate here. Yeah, this is this is weird. And then so Smith pulls one to right. So as the emailer Andrew points out, probably a, a lefty. Potentially Seth Smith is hitting here. He is a left-handed <laughs> hitter. I don't know. <laughs> so there's a lot weird going on here. And as always, when we do this, I will repeat the plea. If you are doing some kind of representation of baseball in media, if you're doing a baseball ad, just come to us. Just run it by us. Just we'll listen. We'll give you our thoughts and feedback. We don't ask for a lot. We just want to help. We just want to be your baseball consultant and tell you why your script doesn't make sense. So this is like an unforced error because the announcer could be saying anything while these painters are painting. So uh, this is inexcusable. I think there's a, a lot of weirdness for this very short ad with not that much commentary. For absolutely no reason. You're right. Unforced error is a good way to put it. And I'm, I'm trying to listen to the crowd as Smith pulls the home run. And I don't think that the crowd makes any more noise as the ball is hit or leave it. They, they do manage <laughs> to include the crack of the bat. So kudos to them for their attention to detail. But it's like the crowd didn't notice. Yeah. Like how, how <laughs> out of the race is this team in order for the crowd to just be like, uh, well, great, we won the game, but now we just lost like a high draft pick or something yeah. where they're just kind of caught in between. And like people don't necessarily want like signature home run calls, right? Like this, uh, sometimes it can seem a little forced or hackneyed or whatever. But yeah. if you're an announcer, here's how not to call a dramatic walk-off home run. Smith pulls one to right, a walk-off home run to win the game. What an amazing fit. This is, there's zero sincerity or this is what people used to complain about like joe buck when they thought oh he just doesn't even care he shows no emotion and no matter what's happening on the field like what an amazing fit no there's (laughs) what level maybe this isn't maybe this isn't major league baseball and also is it the radio broadcaster who's calling the game is he the same one who does the the frog tape information at the end of this yeah so he goes right from (laughs) what an amazing finish to talking about frog tape, which <laughs> makes that call even worse. <laughs> Here's uh, the well, yeah, because I guess frog tape. It's not. It's not even like measuring tape, so you can't see the frog tape distance of that walk off home no. run was four hundred thirty. <laughs> no, it's just like no. frog tape. Yeah, when if you're, you're painting, oh, the painting the corners, painting you could say corners. that. But, but again, this guy was clearly not painting the corners. 
<laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Andrew, for bringing that to our attention. And thanks, Frog Tape, for getting that entirely wrong. All right. Question from, eh, let's take one from Joel on the Ringer MLB show. Ben mentioned David Price and in passing called him a Hall of Fame level guy. At first, I thought that was a bit much, but after looking at his BRF page, I was surprised at how high his overall career value stats and Hall of Fame indicators are in the current Hall of Fame voting environment. Do you think he'll have a legitimate shot at the Hall? And if not now, will he down the road as voters adjust to guys who have played only in today's lower workload slash higher effort pitching environment? Who else might start to make the cut for in this era who might not accumulate the counting stats that used to be Hall of Fame milestones and that is the big question because obviously voters it seems have been slow to adjust to the changes in pitcher usage and I wonder whether we'll see some kind of like veterans committee down the road that is composed of former pitchers or players from this era who recognize that pitchers are not throwing 250-300 innings anymore and so they have to adjust their expectations for what is Hall of Fame caliber And maybe then we'll see a bunch of guys who did not get in the first time around get in. But anyway, that hasn't really happened yet. So here we are with David Price, who, of course, is only 32 years old and might have a long ways ahead of him, although his recent history, performance, and health throws that into some question. Right. So according to baseball reference, at least, David Price is 14th among active pitchers in career wins above replacement. Just reading down the top five, we've got CC Sabathia, Clayton Kershaw, Zach Greinke, Justin Verlander, and Cole Hamels. And then there's Felix, Bertolo Colon, Scherzer, Lester, Lackey, and Sale, I guess, rounding out the next six. I don't know why I went six. If you look at fan graphs, then it's not quite so easy to search, but you've got Sabathia is up there. He is in first place, a little bit ahead of Clayton Kershaw, who is ahead of Verlander, who is ahead of Grinky. Grinky is up there. Cool mm-hmm. for him. Did I just overlook him on baseball reference or what happened here? <laughs> oh, I, I did. I think okay. I might have overlooked him. Or I said his name and don't remember. It doesn't really matter. So David Price, though, is all the way down. He's in like the mid 30s. And he's 31 years old, so as good as he's been, he's going to need... Just yeah, turned 32. 32. Yeah. Okay, so had just had his age 31 season. So he's mm-hmm. 32 years old. It seems, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but it seems like he could shortly be on the verge of missing about 12 to 15 months <laughs> if he uh, needed yeah. a certain ligament replaced. Mm-hmm. So uh, I get he hasn't really declined that much. He's still effective as a starting pitcher, but I feel like he's going to need some more... Yeah, more years of starting than being really good, which you can never count on in your 30s. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, he has a Cy Young Uh, award. He has two runner up Cy Young finishes. But yeah, he he needs several more years. And I think I mean, maybe if if the elbow is all that is ailing him and he gets a fresh one, maybe he'll (laughs) have a second wind. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, he's you know, he was at one point, I would say, on a Hall of Fame trajectory Mm -hmm. and then, well, 2016, he led the majors in innings pitched, but was not as effective on a per-inning basis, and then he missed most of this year. So eh, it, it'll be tough. He has a shot at it, but uh, certainly not a lock or anything like that, and not, not the first guy you would mention if you're talking about beneficiaries of the Hall of Fame voters possibly reappraising pitchers in this Here's era. a question for you. David Price and Johnny Cueto have both played over 10 years. Both debuted in 2008. Both played through 2017. They're both same age. They've thrown about the same number of innings, a little shy of 1,800 in the major leagues. Would you rather have Price or Cueto going forward? Also, they've both been worth about 33 or 34 wins above replacement, according to Baseball Reference. Yeah, probably would have said Cueto before this season, 
And then, well, he missed some time, but he was also just a lot less effective below average pitcher when he was pitching. So that's a tough one. I I guess I'd take Price over Cueto probably. Uh, I'll take Cueto. Okay. All right, question from Rob. I've noticed over the years that certain pitching coaches will develop a reputation for excellence and garner attention for their methods. We're all familiar with Ray Searidge, Don Cooper, Dave Rigetti. Earlier, there was Bud Black, and earlier still, I remember Roger Craig. There are others, of course. One that I hear very little about is Rick Honeycutt. This despite the fact that I'm a lifelong Dodgers fan. Honeycutt has remained in his position over various Dodgers front office regimes and several different managerial regimes. Note that the current front office cleaned house at all levels organizationally, but kept Honeycutt in place. This leads me to think he's actually one of the more valuable pitching coaches in baseball. Strange then that his profile is so low, or am I misreading this? Honeycutt's profile is it actually larger than I perceive. I've heard some talk on Dodgers Twitter over the past couple years that Honeycutt is valued by the team for his ability to fix mechanics and deliveries. I have an irrational desire for Honeycutt to get more attention, although maybe it would be counterproductive to the Dodgers' success, so maybe I should just shut up. Well, let's see. Honeycutt is, he joined the Dodgers coaching staff as a pitching coach for the 2006 season. Okay. So he's been, this is, this would be then his, the completion of his 12th year of being the pitching coach for the Dodgers. Yeah. He's the only guy who stuck around. I don't have a real good, quick, easy way of looking up who's been the longest serving pitching coach. So if you were tried to measure these things, which, well, first of all, you can't, but one might argue that the best way, the best measure of a coach's effectiveness might just be how long he has lasted, which is sort of along the same lines of saying well a pitcher's best pitch is just the pitch that he throws the most and that's it which is a a compelling and convincing viewpoint so from that perspective Honeycutt clearly is among the best pitching coaches in the game because he just has kept his job and you see how even John Farrell can lose his job after finishing in first place two years in a row in the best division in baseball because they just wanted a new voice but the Dodgers haven't wanted or needed a new voice so that is a point in Honeycutt's credit I think that what's probably working against them and this is maybe there are maybe a few things here but one it's the Dodgers and I think people are disinclined to give too much credit to the coaching staff or a team that has so many resources. That's not Honeycutt's fault. It's just the reality of what the situation is. And even though he has his own reclamation projects, they don't need those reclamation projects in the same way that the Pirates do or the White Sox have. And I think in addition to that, at least now, I think that there's a perception that's probably based in reality that the Dodgers are just a very complex, complicated organism where there are a lot of different people who are responsible for any one decision. Like when the Dodgers seem to have like fixed Tony Singrani, who they picked up from the Reds with very little fanfare around the deadline. But in the articles that have been written about Singrani getting better, it's been mostly about changing how he's using his pitches and and changing the frequency of how often he uses Mm -hmm. his pitches. And so that is a, a successful a seemingly successful reclamation project on the Dodgers part, but one that seemed to come from people other than Rick Honeycutt. Mm-hmm. So in this sense, he could be suffering or not suffering from the idea of other people being responsible for pitching consequences. Mm-hmm. So there are those points to make against him, but I don't think that Honeycutt is a bad coach by any means. I think that Honeycutt is one of those coaches that the fans of the team like. There are only so many of those to go around. I think Mm -hmm. people tend to anchor to, like with Don Cooper, whenever I think of Don Cooper, I think of Matt Thornton because he made Matt Thornton good when he was bad. And it's really easy to get anchored into guys like that. And Ray Searge had his own. I, I don't know who you might get anchored to with Rick Honeycutt. So maybe that's another area where he's, he's coming up short for reasons other than his own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, I mean, I'm always sort of suspicious of the coaching guru who, you know, we've seen so many times that guys will develop that reputation and then they won't 
continue to do whatever it was that got them that reputation and maybe they actually never were that great maybe they just happened to work really well with a certain collection of players and not with the collection of players who followed them so I don't know really how predictive that reputation is but I would agree if you manage to survive changes in front office regime and manager like multiple times that's pretty impressive I I mean I guess it could mean that you just like have dirt on everyone and compromising (laughs) pictures of people or you're just like a really good guy who people like to hang out with or it's like interpersonal skills more so than baseball skills but I doubt it especially with that Dodgers regime I doubt they're making decisions on that basis so yeah it's probably a positive sign and maybe it has something to do with like just how forthcoming you are with the media in some cases Mm -hmm. like You know, maybe some coaches are more willing to talk about what they've done or to promote themselves in a way that lends itself to glowing, flattering profiles and pieces. And maybe Honeycutt is not like that. I don't know. I don't know Rick Honeycutt, but that could have (laughs) something to do with it, too. So, yeah, I would agree. Just the fact that he's still there with this regime that really takes a hard look at everything and, and tries to maximize every area of the organization, I would say that's probably a positive sign. This is a few years old, but just for the record, I did ask fans on Fangraphs about their pitching coaches uh, in February of 2015. So again, this is three seasons ago, basically, but just I just asked fans for whether they thought their pitching coach was very good, pretty good, average, pretty bad, very bad, or no opinion. And Rick Honeycutt finished exactly 15th. So he was very middle of the pack, Mm. according to Dodgers fans back then, who is behind Derek Lilliquist and ahead of Brett Strom. Uh Okay. Well, sure. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there certain coaches also like have a very identifiable philosophy. Like there's one thing that they become known for, whether it's like Charlie Lau or something with his unorthodox hitting style or, or whatever, or like Mets pitching coach Dan Worthen, right? With like the Worthen slider that everyone mm-hmm. was writing about for a while. And now Dan Worthen just got fired, right? Because like <laughs> there was speculation that maybe that slider actually hurt people or something. So those kind of coaches can kind of crash and burn reputation wise very quickly. If you get known for one thing, maybe that thing stops working. Maybe it's a positive sign if you don't have a one thing associated with you because maybe there is no one size fits all thing that you should apply to all players. It should be a case by case basis. So maybe if a coach doesn't have that, it's a sign that he just kind of treats every player on a personalized individual basis, which would potentially be yeah which is important i think that it's it's really simple to want there to be a one-size-fits-all philosophy it's the easiest for a fan to analyze be like oh this is the team that pitches inside or this is the team that uses the sinker but of course there are pitchers who have different skill sets and and they'll thrive by following different paths Mm -hmm. so you want those individualized coaches which is of course very difficult because a coach will have i don't know 30 pitchers that he's looking at over the course of a season which is a lot to work with and those are a lot of people to understand but then that's why you have multiple coaches Mm -hmm. All right, last one from Brendan. In this weekend, St. Louis Post-Dispatch, Jose de Jesus Ortiz wrote about the dysfunctional clubhouse atmosphere the Cardinals have had this season. In it, one part stuck out to me, and it's one we all heard because it's such a cliche. In this article, Ortiz states, the veterans implored their teammates to put the team's goals above individual glory. This article, by the way, is, you know, it's like a bunch of cliches about how the Cardinals' way is great and 
they lost because players from outside the organization hadn't internalized the Cardinals way or whatever. It's it's probably nonsense. But anyway, the question from Brendan is, it seems to me that striving for good individual stats can only help the team's goal of winning as many games as possible. This isn't a sport like basketball where you can actually hurt your team by taking too many shots. You try and hit for average, probably going to help your team out. Trying to strike out as many batters as possible, generally going to have a positive effect on your team's outcome. Is there any instance in baseball where going for individual glory could hurt your team's chances of winning? The only thing I could think of is trying to steal bases or possibly refusing to bunt in a situation where doing so makes sense. And that's probably the case. Even trying to steal bases, I mean, if you get caught stealing, that hurts you just as much as the team potentially. So, I mean, there are like the productive outs kind of situation, the situation where you get butt pats when you get back to the dugout, even though you didn't necessarily do something positive for your stats. There are cases where you do want to choke up and try to hit the ball the other way or hit a sack fly or something because the team really needs to score one run in that situation. And by not swinging for the fences, maybe you are minimizing your chances of hitting a home run or something, but you're maximizing your chances of getting the run in. So there is that. There are certain cases where maybe your incentives and the team's incentives are not totally aligned. But your response to this email, I think, was more about the psychological aspects of this are kind of the, the team building bonding spin yeah i i would suspect i didn't read the article that closely because again it's the same cliches as always but i i i suspect that this is less about baseball is an individual game that's that's the end of it uh just about everything is about whether you out pitch the hitter or whether you out hit the pitcher or something it is all about who is on the bases at the plate the most selfish player would have really good numbers if he's a good player but i would imagine that this has less to do with necessarily on field selfish behavior and and just about the perception that players don't care so much about what the team does as opposed to what they do because at the end of the day every player does need to be selfish he needs to worry about himself but you at least want to create that illusion that this is a a team-based sport and while i think everyone has the understanding that it really is about one-on-one 25 times or whatever you want to say that it is if players don't have the sense that their teammates are there and passionate about supporting everyone then you can see how that could cause some sort of discord or at least prevent bonds from forming that might have formed otherwise so i don't know because this is just an analysis of one clubhouse and one season in which a team didn't make the playoffs well i i mean i would imagine that you're going to get a lot of the same stories from 19 other clubhouses that wouldn't really be a surprise to me and certainly for the cardinals to come close to the playoffs and miss them and and being the cardinals and what they've been in the past then you just kind of go into it thinking like what went wrong with this team as opposed to maybe they just weren't talented enough. Yeah. But I, I can see without having been there, uh, I know there have been uh, complaints about Mike Matheny's leadership. I know there have been complaints from players about Mike Matheny's leadership from, you know, the actual leader of the Cardinals, mm-hmm. which would be Yadier Molina. And I can see how maybe there just wasn't that supportive atmosphere that you want that, you know, to put it simply, just makes you want to go to work every morning or in their case, every afternoon to just kind of want to be there and enjoy your time at the ballpark. God knows how much that actually affects the product on the field. But I can see that, I don't know, maybe the Cardinals just didn't have quite the same supportive atmosphere that they've had in the past. And and that's a pretty easy thing to point to for a player or a coach after the season, which is easier to point to than saying, well, we just weren't as good as other teams were who mm-hmm. did make the playoffs. Yeah. All right. While we were speaking, we got some details about Steven Strasburg. Mike Rizzo, Nationals GM, talked to the press, said that Strasburg had flu-like symptoms since his start, was placed on antibiotics, was given intravenous fluids, 
and told Dusty Baker he would start. Rizzo says that Strasburg felt obligated to pitch and was not pressured by teammates or media to make the start, according to Bob Nightingale's tweets here. So that is uh, what we know about Strasburg now. Sounds like he was fairly seriously sick, and I'm always amazed by pitchers, really any players, but particularly pitchers, since they have the bulk of the work in any one game as a starter, I'm always amazed that they manage to pitch through things, because anyone who has ever, like, been sick, just regular civilians, especially if you're nauseated, I mean, it's hard to imagine just going to a job where you sit in a cubicle at a computer, let alone being a baseball pitcher. And I wrote an article about five years ago at Baseball Perspectives called What Happens When Starters Get Sick that you can all Google if you're interested. And I just looked for examples of times when starters were sick and talked about their symptoms and how they looked and how they pitched and everything. And of course, it's a, a very skewed sample because generally, you, I think you don't necessarily hear that the pitcher was sick unless like he pitched very well often you'll hear like oh he was throwing up right before the game and yet he still went out there and was great or I guess maybe there are cases where there's a blowout or something I mean pitchers are often reluctant to make an excuse like I wasn't feeling well or whatever so I think it's probably a a skewed sample but I'm always amazed that players are able to do this despite having these symptoms that would sideline most of us from our less physically demanding jobs. So Strasburg had flu-like symptoms but Rizzo says he was given antibiotics. (laughs) Yeah that's kind of weird right? (laughs) I guess. Yeah someone's someone's (laughs) telling a lie here. Yeah, maybe they just don't know you you can't cure a virus. I don't know. But (laughs) it's, yeah, flu-like symptoms is just like, at this point, it's just a generic term for like any illness in baseball. It seems like if you... He was pooping too much. Yeah. He was having some diarrhea. Yes. It can even be a euphemism probably for a hangover at some... I'm not saying it was in this case. I'm sure it wasn't, but that probably has been the case in the past and all sorts of ailments probably contained under the umbrella of flu-like symptoms we could we could have an expose here if the nationals are prescribing antibiotics for someone who has a virus (laughs) then like there's a training staff problem here that's bigger than the other one yeah medical staff (laughs) (laughs) all right so we will end there and we'll be back soon to talk about actual baseball games hey all right i actually just went back and reviewed that article that i wrote about sick pitchers evidently i concluded that these sick starters actually throw less hard than they usually do and usually pitch poorly although not in all cases and even the ones who pitched poorly had great moments so my memory was off a bit about that maybe i was thinking about the fact that if you pitch well you won't say you're sick because, hey, who cares? Doesn't matter. You pitch well anyway. So probably still a skewed sample. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Five listeners who have already pledged their support include Nick Taylor, Jem Organ, Greg Danchik, Dustin McDonald, and Ryan Cutchin. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcast at or via the Patreon messaging system. We will talk to you soon. I'm